Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. After Jesus had been born at Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is the infant king of the Jews, they asked. We saw his star as it rose and have come to do him a homage. When King Herod heard this, he was perturbed, and so was the whole of Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. At Bethlehem in Judea, they told him, for that is what the prophet wrote, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men to see him privately. He asked them the exact date on which the star had appeared and sent them on to Bethlehem. Go and find out all about the child, he said. And when you have found him, let me know, so that I too may go and do him homage. Having listened to what the king had to say, they set out. And there, in front of them, was the star they had seen rising. It went forward and halted over the place where the child was. The sight of the star filled them with delight. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and falling to their knees, they did him homage. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, and returned to their own country by a different way. So we are with the wise men in Jerusalem and then in Bethlehem. It's the Gospel of St. Matthew, the beginning of chapter 2 in St. Matthew. And St. Matthew is the only Gospel writer that refers to this mysterious visit by these men from afar. Very mysterious. It's almost the stuff of tales. It really is strange to have it pop it like that in Matthew, because Matthew doesn't even refer to Bethlehem, otherwise he doesn't even tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem as it is from Luke that we know all of that. The last thing we had from Matthew was the dream of Joseph, supposedly in Nazareth, and then Joseph deciding to, to take Mary as his wife, after having been warned in the dream that her child was of the Holy Spirit. And then this is immediately Matthew 2, 1, after Jesus had been born at Bethlehem in Judea, during the reign of King Herod. Extraordinary visit in Bethlehem, of the wise men. It is during the reign of King Herod. Now King Herod is one of the main characters in this story. It's not the Herod that will uh, play a part during the Passion of Jesus, but his father. It's not Herod Antipas, it's Herod the Great. And he was a very 
powerful king, a very well-known king. It was in fact the, the greatest king in Judea at that time. Reigned for almost 40 years. Very, very cruel. Very shrewd as a politician. That's Herod the Great we're talking about. And his title was the King of the Jews. And he was, of course, a lesser king because he was reigning over a, a kingdom that actually belonged to the Romans. So he was serving the Roman Empire but he was also reigning in his own person as a king. And he managed to build himself this place, this kingdom, this situation, even though he wasn't himself fully a Jew. When the wise men arrived, it must have been a, a shock for him. And in fact, the, the word that's used in the gospel is perturb. It is a bit of a shock. It's a very nasty shock. It's not a very positive word. It's a nasty shock. And we'll see why. Those mysterious wise men, we don't know anything about that, about them really, except for this passage. And they are called magi, as we know. Uh, so the, the word that's used for them is usually attributed to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonian Empire. These would be the wise men of the East. However, it's very difficult to define exactly where they would be coming from, and the East can mean a variety of places. All sorts of hypotheses are being made about where they come from and who they are, but they're not kings. The church only started calling them kings in the 4th century, but then nowhere in the text does it tell us they are kings. They, they appear to be kingly because of the great presence and the great retinue they have, the, the coming in all this splendor, but really, they, they're not kings. They're, they're just magi, they're wise men. References to people who are like magi are in the scripture we have Balaam, who is a, a wise man, a, a seer, hired by Balak, king of Moab, to curse Israel. And Balaam, in, instead of prophesying against Israel, prophesies for Israel. And Balak is really upset with him because he's hired him to prophesy uh, against Israel. And Balaam is actually one whose prophecy we can refer to when we look at the wise men because he talks about the star. And it's one of the only references we can match with, with the wise men. It's in Numbers 24, 15 to 17. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down but having his eyes uncovered. I see him but not now, I behold him but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so that's this mention of the star that Balan makes centuries before Jesus. And Balaam is a prophet, but a pagan prophet. He's not a Jew. Uh, he, he's a seer, a wise man. He prophesies. And, and that's a little bit reminiscent of who those wise men might be. Two of the people who can fill the office such as the wise men had would be Joseph in Genesis, who has these dreams and is able to interpret dreams, and Daniel, who also works for King Nebuchadnezzar in the empire of the Chaldeans and is able to interpret deep dreams. So these are wise men. 
and and we have this similar affinity with the Magi. I really want to ask one question tonight, and this is how wise are the wise men? So just to focus on them, how wise are the wise men? Even though the text is quite short, we can see a lot of their features, a lot of their choices already portrayed through their actions. And that tells us an awful lot about them and what's important to them. How wise are the wise men? We will look at their wisdom according to the criteria of the world and the criteria of the wisdom of God. How wise are the wise men according to worldly wisdom? How wise are the wise men according to divine wisdom? Now, their use of knowledge, those wise men are extremely knowledgeable. We can see that because just from looking at the sky, they see a star and they know all sorts of things from the star. First of all, they know what they're looking at. They're able to recognize that this star is, is a sign of something greater. Um, when I look at stars, I can't I just see stars. When the wise men look at the stars, they recognize one in particular at that particular time, and they know what it means, which means they have a wealth of knowledge and experience behind them that enables them to interpret what they see and, and to interpret it rightly. So they are very, very knowledgeable even to the point that they, they've recorded the exact date on which the star had appeared, which is what Herod is asking them. And they are able to determine where the star is going, what it signifies, and they are able to follow the stars. So they're not just knowledgeable, they are wealthy enough to be able to do that. They are wealthy enough to be able to get off and travel from wherever they are to Jerusalem or Bethlehem from the east. It could mean a week or it could mean a month or a few months. And that means that they would have all the money they need to keep going for that length of time, for that journey, bringing gifts, bringing so, treasuries. So they, they are very wealthy. Not only that, but they, that's what they choose to do with their time. Now, in the eyes of the world, if you have this sort of money and this sort of time and this sort of knowledge, you could make more money from that. You could, you could invest all that knowledge to have power. You could invest all that money to get more money. You could spend your time making more money. But the wise men don't, don't seem to make this sort of decision they seem to be completely wasting their time, their money, and their knowledge on something they're not quite sure about. Because in the end, they have to ask someone to help them. They are knowledgeable, but not, not to the extent that they can find Jesus. They have to get some help, and that's why they stop in Jerusalem and ask King Herod. And that's a question on the choice of people as well. Why would you ask King Herod, who is... A terrible king is not the first person that you would think would be able to help you on your quest. So they're looking for the truth about the star. They're looking about the meaning of the star. They know the king of the Jews has been born and they're looking for him. They're searching for the truth and they give all their money and all their time invested in their search for truth. And then they go and find King Herod, who is 
probably at the end of his life because King Herod reigned from 40 BC to 4 BC. So in fact Jesus was born before the year zero if we are to calculate by the death of King Herod which was in 4 BC. And so it, it might have been around 6 BC for Herod to be still alive. But then it would be right at the end of the life of King Herod. And by that time King Herod has built himself a kingdom through political device but also terrible cruelty. He's known to have massacred people and he has killed in particular at least three of his own sons. He has killed some of his wives. He, he, he has built magnificent buildings uh, but at what cost is a very cruel king and certainly not one that's particularly interested in religion. Of course he's built the Jews a magnificent tem temple, he's rebuilt the temple for them and it was one of the glories of his days and you would think that the wise men may have come to see that temple because it was so amazing but at the same time King Herod had no problem dealing with pagan religions on the side. He's not fully a Jew. So why would the wise men ask him that question? And the choice of words that they make as well is very clumsy. They go to King Herod, who's not really the most likely person to know anything about their search for truth, and he certainly would not himself be interested in truth, such as his life been. But then, the question, the words that the wise men use to ask King Herod is, where is the infant king of the Jews? So they're asking the king of the Jews, where is the infant king of the Jews? To someone who's already killed some of his sons for fear that they would overtake him. So you can imagine how political that is on the part of the wise men. Is it really wise to ask the king who is, or where is the king? Of course, Herod is perturbed, is, is, is shocked and astonished and not in a good way because as we know when he's asking the wise men to tell him where they find him it's in order to destroy him not in order to do him homage as he tells them um, go and find out all about the child he said and when you have found out found him let me know so that I too may go and do him homage we know what that means in the mouth of King Herod after the, the wise men don't come back to him who will be uh, slaughtering the innocents in order to slaughter Jesus. So how wise are those wise men to ask such a man where is the king of the Jews? I would think not very. So their choice of people, the choice of words, the choice of place, how wise are they not to think that the God of Israel would be in the temple rather than in the house in Bethlehem? When the wise men arrived to Jerusalem from the east, they would have seen the temple. It was magnificent, just rebuilt. One of the splendors of its day. Brand new. And yet the temple is not even mentioned, Herod's temple. And the glory for Herod. Perhaps even Herod thought when he saw them come, maybe he was reminded of Solomon, who was visited by the Queen of Sheba uh, with all her treasures. You know, maybe he thought he was himself a bit of a Solomon with his temple. But no, whereas the Queen of Sheba was interested in Solomon and asked him questions, 
The wise king are only interested in Herod insofar as he can tell them where the king of the Jews is. In, in other words, you're not the, the proper, the right king of the Jews. We have seen his star and we have come to do him homage. They're not come to do homage to Herod. So, worldly wise, they're not very wise, are they, those wise king? And then, what is the purpose of all their efforts? What is the purpose of all their waste of time and money and knowledge, of, of their questioning Herod? What are they looking for? Their intention in all of this is to adore, is to worship God, is to worship the newborn king of the Jews, which is extraordinary considering that these men would be pagans, they're not Jews, and they have not had the benefit of the revelation of the God of Israel to his people. And this is precisely why they have to ask Herod, in order to gain from God's revelation to his people through the prophets. There is some knowledge that they don't have, and they don't have precisely because they're not part of the chosen people. That's why Herod calls together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. At Bethlehem in Judah, they told him, for that is what the prophet wrote. Without revelation, there are certain things that just cannot be known by human reasoning. So the wise men stumble upon the limitation of their human knowledge. They have to get hold of, of divine knowledge and that knowledge has been revealed to the people of Israel. What is the intention in all this? It's to do him homage, to worship him. We have come to do him homage, we have come to worship him. And the word that is used when they come into the house, the sight of the star fills them with delight. First of all, there's this great joy. They find joy in that search for truth. And when the search is accomplished, when finally they find the one they've been looking for, they find that joy for which the human heart is made, really. They are filled with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and falling to their knees, they did him homage. Now, this falling on their knees, when they fall on their knees, it's a word that's really only used for God. It's a prostration, complete prostration in front of the child. And we have that word specifically in Revelation 199 to 10. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And this is the same word. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the angel is telling John that he should not worship him. He should not prostrate himself in front of him because he's not God. You can only do that for God. And the same word is used in Matthew Matthew 4, 8 to 10, it's the third temptation. And the devil uh, takes Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Again, that same word. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So the action of the wise men in the house when they see the child and fall to their knees and worship him, 
this is an action that is reserved only for God. And that's the purpose of their whole effort, their whole journey, their spending of their money, their spending of their time, all their treasures, their questioning. This is it. This is what they have. That's the finality of all their actions. That was their intentions to start off with, as they told Herod, and that is exactly what they do. So, is it wise? Is it wise of them to do all of this in order to fall prostrate at the feet of a mother and a child in a dirty house when you've just left a magnificent temple? Well, of course, if Jesus is not God, it's ridiculous. All this effort, absolutely ridiculous. But if Jesus is God, and that is why really this visit of the wise men is an epiphany, it's a manifestation, a disclosure of the divinity of Jesus, even of that little child in that house in Bethlehem with his mother, that here among us is God himself. And the wise men are wise precisely because they have recognized this. Using the light of reason, they're working out the stars, looking at the stars, understanding the signs, following the sign, and their reliance on God's revelation, which they needed when they stopped in Jerusalem to ask the questions of which they didn't have the answers. Because reason does not give us all the answers. If Jesus is God, then they are the wisest of men. If Jesus isn't God, they are very foolish and have made a complete waste of time. But of course, he is God. And the wise men help us to grow in wisdom ourselves, to recognize that truth about Jesus, God who manifests himself through them. Because in them, we see something very deep about ourselves, that what they have man managed to do, of course, they, they're wealthy to start off with, so that's really easy, isn't it? They can afford to take time off. But what they've done, those sacrifices they've made in, in that journey, in that time, in that effort, the, the, even the direction uh, that they give their knowledge is a search for truth, a search for God. Because a search for truth is always a search for God. God is the truth that all, all of us, the human heart is made for, that all of us are searching for. And the wise men remind us of that. And sadly, very, very few of us take the time and make the effort, make the investment of that search for truth in our life. We, our lives get filled with so many things. And there is a bit of a tragedy about this whole event of the wise men, which is to see how those who have been entrusted with God's revelation, so more truth, as it were, than, than is reachable by human reason, that is, the scribes and the high priest in Jerusalem, who have the answer to their question, they don't bother to go to Bethlehem. He called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, at Bethlehem in Judea. They know it, but they don't do anything about it. And that is really tragic. 
Whereas as soon as the wise men who are not Jew know it, they do something about it. They leave immediately. Another very tragic twist to this is that this event is filled with reminiscence from the Passion because here it's the first time that King Herod gets together with the chief priests and the scribes of the people. Normally they would have hated each other because Herod wasn't a proper Jew. And Herod was working for the Romans on behalf of the Romans. Herod was representing everything that's corrupt about uh, an Israel that is, gets on with the enemy and is not faithful to the law of God, as we know from his life. Whereas the chief priests and the scribes would hate him. And here they get together. When is the next time that King Herod, not him but his son and the chief priests and the scribes will get together? It will be the time when they want to bring Jesus down, when they want to put him to death and they team up against Jesus. We have also the reminiscence in Matthew. The only other time where Jesus is called King of the Jews is in the Passion. Matthew 27, 27 to 31 particularly, which is the mocking of Jesus. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him and plating a crown of thorns they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him they mocked him saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they spat upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to, crucified, to crucify him. And then over the he his head they put um, the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And this is all, all, all of this is echoed in Psalm 2, where you have in Psalm 2 the prophecy of this gathering of the kings of the earth, this conspiration of Herod teaming up with the chief priests and the scribes. The, king of the, uh, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. And this teaming up, this conspiracy, we see it happening already with uh, the killing of the innocent children by Herod, which follows straight from the... Um, from the wise men's visit, of course, because now Herod knows that he is born. And so uh, we have it in Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage and sent and killed all the men, ch male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. So... The, the hints of the passion are already here. This king of the Jews that unmistakably Herod recognizes to be the Christ. The wise men ask him, where is the infant king of the Jews? When King Herod heard this, he called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So for Herod, there is no mistake that this infant king of the Jews is the Messiah. And yet, knowing that, he decides to kill him. He sees him as a threat to himself. And the chief priests and the scribes don't seem to be doing anything to prevent him. They don't actually seem to be interested in having a look at the Messiah. 
which is so tragic. They've been entrusted with that treasury of revolution and they don't follow it up. They don't um, they don't take it up. And yet, here God himself manifests himself at that truth for which we are made that we are searching for. And, and the wise men represent what's best about humanity searching for God, even though they're pagans. They're, they're, they're random. They're, they, we don't know their religion, but they're not Jewish. And yet they seek the truth and they find him. They find him with the help of that revelation. And when they find him, they find he's the one who is to be worshipped. Not King Herod. Not anyone else. But that baby in that house. Not King Herod in his temple. They recognize him through the light of reason and the light of faith. And when they recognize him, that little baby, they recognize God who has come to us. They've traveled from afar. They've traveled from the east. And they've searched for that truth. And so there's this meeting place between God and, and, and man's desire for God. If you want the human heart made for that love and that truth that is infinite. That no created love, no created truth can fill. Um, God's own love, God's own truth. That's what we're made for. That's what the wise men go after. And they find him precisely because he has put himself within our reach. In Jesus, God has put himself within our reach. He is the one who's traveled the greatest distance. He's the one who's traveled from the Father down to us, to, to earth, to, to us, from the uncreated reality of divinity to the created reality of humanity. That's a far greater distance than coming from the East. But this meeting between God and the human person, as seen in the wise men, comes as the result of a common search. The, the, the travel, the journey that God does, and the journey that we make. And our journey will always look ridiculously small compared to the journey that God has made, but it has to be done. And precisely that tragedy of the scribes and the Pharisees who have received so much and yet do not go on that journey to Bethlehem, do not have the humility to recognize in that little house the presence of God. So then we see something about ourselves in the wise men who are able to see the signs and to recognize it. And that's what we are meant to be as well. The reason we've been given our understanding, the reason we've been given our faith, is to be able to recognize the signs, to understand the signs that God gives us when he reveals himself to us, when he reveals his presence, when he reveals his action. So they see the sign of the star and they understand it. Countless people at that time would have seen that star, but none of them would have followed it like the wise men. They see the sign and they do something about it. They understand what it means and they trust it. And we have other people in St. Luke who have seen the sign and it's the uh, shepherds and we've had it just at Christmas. The shepherds in the field are given a sign 
the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Again, this great joy. Like the wise men, the shepherds have this great, great joy. They rejoiced with great joy. The signs bring great joy. And that's one of the ways to discern that they come from God, is that joy that it brings. Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so the sign is the star, the sign is the baby itself. But both signs point and hide at the same time the greatness of that reality which is too big to be contained in created stuff, but which is nonetheless fully present, which is God. The star and the baby, God himself here, revealed, manifested through these signs to those who are able to see them and recognize them and understand. And the, the reaction of both the shepherds and the wise king is to worship using the light of reason and the light of faith. Finally, the church. How do we understand the church in this passage? The example of the wise men is held up to us. They are to be imitated. In fact, we, we venerate them as saints in the church. And their shrine is in Cologne in Germany, where the uh, relics have ended up. So they are very, very important in the church as men who have followed the light of their reason, and have humbly accepted God's revelation. So when my understanding fails, my knowledge reaches its limit, they were able then to ask of the word of God the light which they didn't have naturally, that supernatural light. And from both the light of reason and the light of faith, the word of God through the prophet, they were able to find Jesus. And when they found him, they didn't store this information as an extra piece of knowledge, but they worshipped him. So that great intelligence coupled with great humility in the search for truth, which profoundly, yes, changed their lives. And that's the way to holiness. The way to holiness is always to search for Jesus. It's always a movement away from the search for self, to the search for Jesus. Again, the wise men are a great example for us of a life that is God-centered. And it's, it's actually the, the profound meaning of ecstasy. Ecstasy is a coming out of oneself. It's leaving oneself behind in order to contemplate God who reveals himself, but being able to recognize him and doing that for his sake, which is really how wise they are that their quest is not ultimately directed at themselves. They are content, they are satisfied with achieving what they came to do, which is to worship. And in worshipping him who has come even in the humility of our flesh, so being able to recognize him through faith, they indicate to us the purpose of our life, which is the praise and adoration of God. We are made to worship God beginning now, but for all eternity. And the wise men who came from the East, had no relationship with Israel, are able to do that, by God's grace. We see them as servants of the truth. 
They humbly accept a truth which they do not own. They recognize it, they follow it, they serve it. And nothing puts them off their quest. Not even the wickedness of Herod or, or having to go into a territory that's foreign. And, no, and they go in and they go in to Bethlehem. And the, the meaning of Bethlehem is the house of bread. Now when we think of Bethlehem as the house of, of bread, of course it has Eucharistic dimension because the bread is the bread of life, Jesus himself. Now if we think of the church as Bethlehem as the house of bread, we can be like the wise men, able to recognize the signs that are given to us. We won't perhaps see a star, but in every church we have the little light of the tabernacle and that's the sign to us that God is here, present, under the appearance of bread and wine, under, under what looks like bread in the tabernacle. He's here, just as he was there as a baby. And it's the same act of faith that is required of us and of them to worship, worship this baby, which looked like any other human baby, and yet they knew this was God because we only worship God. And we, in the same way at church, through the light of reason and faith, in humility we are able to recognize God who is even humbler than we are and who offers himself and yet hides himself under the appearance of bread. And that calls for that journey, that spiritual journey that we make of humbling ourselves, of recognizing that truth, Recognizing in front of us the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, our Lord and Saviour, the Creator of the world, God himself, the Son of the Father, who gives himself to us and presents himself to us for our adoration. When we adore the Blessed Sacrament, we do nothing else than what the wise men did in the house of bread in Bethlehem. And they teach us then how to be truly wise because they have made the wisest investments of their time and money and knowledge and effort. They have made the wisest investment. Because the time and money and comfort, all the things, the knowledge that we have, all these things that we've been given, we can use them for our own ends. To multiply all these created goods that we already have and make ourselves the purpose, the finality of our efforts, which is a worldly way of understanding investment. Or we can invest them by giving them away, wasting them at the service of God who is present in his church. So in adoration, adoration can be really understood as a waste of time for God. We give over our time for God. But a wise investment as well at the service of our neighbor in whom God is present. All of that helps us from the wise men to recognize the presence of God and not be put off if no one else cares. Maybe the wise men would have thought, well, we found that the Messiah these people have been waiting for hundreds of years is just around the corner and no one moves. No one is following us. No one is coming with us. They're waiting for us to come back and tell them, these people are weird. But they didn't get put off by that. Maybe, maybe they thought, well, 
you know, they could have thought arriving, well, that king of the Jews, that infant king of the Jews is of, of, obviously of no importance to anyone here because otherwise they would be coming with us. They would be running ahead of us. No one seems to care about him. Are we up the wrong track? Are we doing the right thing? But no, they were determined. They, they absolutely were not put off until they did what they came to do. And in that poor house of Bethlehem, which was nothing compared to that magnificent temple of King Herod, they found the true presence of God, the one who was to come, the one who is worthy of their and our eternal praise and adoration.